while you know somebody from the assessor's office says, oh, people don't want to just trust to the purity of mathematics, I'm not sure they want to also trust to the chair of the Democratic political machine in Cook County to be making up people's assessments. Eight years ago, Chris Berry found that property taxes in Cook County were not being applied fairly. Poorer people were paying too much tax on their homes, while richer people were paying too little. So Barry, who's a professor and director of the Center for Municipal Finance here at Harris, he helped devise a solution, a new state-of-the-art way of assessing property values that would make the system fairer for everyone. Working with a team of experts, he not only helped develop this new model, but trained the Cook County Assessor's Office on how to use it. It seemed like a huge step in the right direction. So you can imagine Barry's surprise when he learned that this newer, smarter, fairer system was not even being used. Last month, the Chicago Tribune newspaper published a sweeping report proving just that. Turns out, property taxes in Chicago are still punishing the poor while benefiting the rich. Today on Radio Harris, we sit down with Chris Berry to hear how this all went down, how he contributed to this critical investigation, and what he's learned. It all started with a phone call. Yeah, I got a phone call out of the blue from a Tribune reporter asking to just get together for a coffee and talk about work we had done you know, years prior with the assessor's office. And at the time, I thought they were going to write a story about by the, the success of some of the, some of the work we'd done with the assessor, and they were kind of tracking us down to fill in some of the details. But on the very first meeting with them, they said, uh, so we know you built this model for the assessor, or you were part of a team that built that model years back. Uh, what would you say if we tell you they're not actually using that model? And what I said at that meeting is, I think you guys are crazy. There's no way they're not using that model because they have issued a press release saying that they're using it. They spent time getting trained to use it. And uh, you guys better go check your reporting because that's not possible. And what, what was their response? Uh, they understood my, my doubts. And so they... Actually, the next time I met with them, was they had gone back to the assessor's office and actually used uh, FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, to get from the assessor the actual statistical code that was being used to produce the models. So they had, you know, files of SPSS code, which is the software that the assessor used. And the next time I saw those reporters, they came back and said, well, here's the code that we got from the assessor's office through FOIA. This is what they're using today. Is this your model? And at that point... It was clear that it was not. Uh, and that's kind of how this whole, this whole what, what turned into this whole story broke, at least as far as my part of it. Right. And so tell me about what you had been hired to do in 2009. Yeah. So back in 2009, um, this was under the prior assessor, Jim Houlihan, they were having some issue with foreclosure. So this would be kind of in the height of the recession, the foreclosure crisis. And there were some neighborhoods of Chicago where there's just nothing was selling. There were very few home sales taking place. Lots of homes were being foreclosed on, but very few market sales of homes. And so they kind of knew that home prices were falling in those neighborhoods. Uh, but they, the way an assessment model works is you have to have home sales to track the price of homes to see that they're falling. But if no home is selling, then you can't actually see the change in price. And so it's a hard to adjust your models to reflect the change in price when nothing's actually selling. So they had come to us at that point to see if there was anything we could do just on that very narrow problem of the parts of the city where there were lots of foreclosures and few sales. 
I should say they came to Bob Weisbord, who was a, the president of RW Ventures, which is an economic development company. And Bob brought me on as just part of a, as a, as a, an advisor to, he has a team of his own statisticians and what have you. So I was an advisor on that project. And we came up with a relatively simple fix to that problem. And subsequent to that, we kind of, myself and others who worked on the, that work, saw that there was a lot of regressivity in the system. Just, you know, that low-priced homes were assessed at much higher ratios than high-priced homes. You just kind of stumbled across that while doing this yeah, other project. Trying to figure out how to, how to respond to this foreclosure issue, we were just looking with the data and trying to figure out, you know, where's the market falling and how much are assessments keeping up in different parts of town. And in the course of doing that, we just saw from the data, because it was quite glaring, that there's a good deal of regressivity. And so then, again, Bob Weisbord uh, pursued that and went to M the MacArthur Foundation with the collaboration of the assessor's office at the time to, and got a grant to see if we could do anything to help fix it. And he brought me in as a consultant again on, on that piece of work. And that's when we began <laughs> what led to the, the, the work that led to these Tribune stories. So we, we were involved in trying to build a, a new assessment model for them that would uh, produce less regressive assessments. Right. And so before we go any further, explain why is, why is regressivity commonly a problem in property tax? So the, the term regressive uh, means that people who own low-priced homes pay more. So just as you might think of, you know, an income tax could be progressive or regressive. Similarly, a property tax can be progressive or regressive, depending on who pays more. And so the most common a source of regressivity in property taxation is assessment inaccuracies. And so when the assessments themselves are inaccurate, the property tax that result will be inaccurate. So the assessment is the step in which the assessor tries to figure out the value of every home. So let me take a step back and just describe in a nutshell what the assessment process is and how it works. So the challenge of an assessor is that you have to t assign a value of every home in your jurisdiction, even though most of them in any given year don't sell. So for those that sold, it's easy. You observe what their sale price was, and more or less, it gives you an indication of their value. But for the vast majority of homes, they didn't sell. And your challenge is, well, how do you know what those homes are worth? And the standard approach is you take the homes that sold, you use a, some kind of statistical technique to produce a model based on the homes that sold, and then apply those results to come up with a value for the homes that did not sell. So you might run a regression on the homes that sold, you know, home, home pr sale price against a bunch of features of the home. You get the coefficients from that model, and then you apply it to all the homes that didn't sell, and you give them a value. Right. So it's like I bought my house 12 years ago, two beds, two baths, recently refurbished attic. And so what, what would that go for today is sort of what That's you're trying to get at. the question the assessor has to answer, yeah. And so the reason why this can be regressive is that essentially all of our statistical techniques are in one way or another averages. Okay? They can be highly conditional averages, but they're still at the end of the day averages. And you know, the easiest way to think about it for somebody who doesn't know a lot about property taxes is imagine when you pay your income tax every year that you didn't have a W-2 from your employer that says how much money you made. Okay? And imagine that the federal government just had to try to figure out <laughs> how much each person made in levy an income tax on them. Well, without any information on, on people, the best they could do is charge everybody the average. They could say, well, we, I guess we're going to have to assume that everybody earned the average income. Okay? And then we'll, we'll levy an income tax based on that. Well, for the people who made lots and lots of money above average, that's a great deal. Uh, but for the people who are earning below average, that's a horrible deal. Okay? So you might be able to collect some more information about people's wages. For instance, college graduates make more than high school graduates. So you'd say, well, now we'll say you know, 
all college graduates will pay tax on the average college graduate's income and average high school graduates will pay tax on the average high school graduate's income. That would be a little bit better. But still, there's a lot of variation amongst college graduates and high school graduates in terms of how much they make. And so you can keep adding more and more features to the model, keep narrowing down the, the cells that you're averaging over. But still, at the end, if there's any variation left in those cells, even if you said, we're going we're gonna to think you have the average income of a 34-year-old architect in Manhattan, okay, that's a pretty narrow little cell there. Still, there's a lot of variation left. And if you tell every 34-year-old architect in Manhattan that they're going to pay tax on the average income for their category, there's still going to be people who are overtaxed and undertaxed. And effectively, that's what goes on in property taxation. We can narrow it down and say, well, you own a two-bedroom condo in Lakeview, and the average two-bedroom condo in Lakeview costs $300,000. But of course, we know that actually some of them cost four or $500,000, and some of them cost two. And so some people are overpaying and underpaying. And you're always going to be, in a system like this, over-assessing the people who have below-average priced homes. And so the knee-jerk reaction is, well, we have an appeals process where I can go and say, hey, you said my home was worth $120,000. I just bought it for $90,000, so what gives? And then in theory, you'll, you as the assessor will lower it and we'll be where we should be. Um, in reality, this is not what the Tribune, working with Harris students, found. Tell me what's going wrong with the appeals process. Absolutely. So, the, so, the, so when confronted with these uh, findings about regressivity, the assessor's office first reaction will be, as you said, to point out that there is an appeals process and that anybody who's overassessed uh, can appeal and get their their assessment lowered, which is true. However, we were curious as to whether that's how the system actually works. And so we partnered with the Tribune uh, this fall and we've in what's called a policy lab, which is a course at Harris where we have an, an outside client and we do a real world project. So in this policy lab, the client was the Tribune. And the question was, do uh, appeals make property taxes in Cook County more or less regressive? Okay. So if we had found that People who are overassessed, who own low-priced homes and are being taxed unfairly, that they're the ones who appeal and then they get they get their problems fixed, that would be great. Then we'd say, yeah, you know, the appeals process does fix this. But what we found is actually the opposite of that, that the people who are most likely to appeal, perhaps unsurprisingly, are people who own highest-priced homes. They obviously have the most to gain from a, from a reduction in appeals. Uh, and the people who own the lowest-priced homes are much less likely to appeal even though they are the ones that are overassessed to begin with. And so if you look at the amount of regressivity that are in the initial assessments and then the amount of regressivity that's in the assessments after the appeals, appeals process takes place, there's actually more regressivity in the system after the appeals have taken place because what you actually end up doing is lowering the assessments on the most expensive homes that were more likely to actually have been underassessed to begin with. So in the article, the Tribune finds uh, evidence that the assessor's office, instead of relying on the model, they're tweaking the assessment values on a case-by-case -case basis. And defending this decision, somebody from the assessor's office says in a statement to the Tribune, essentially, well, people don't, homeowners don't want their assessments to be done by a math robot anyway. Uh, here's a direct quote. Would they be as concerned about their assessments being based purely on math and driven by equations? 
or would they feel better knowing there was a human being involved? I thought that was really interesting because I think that probably resonates with a lot of people. Like there's this sort of fear of turning these important decisions over to a soulless computing machine, right? What's your response to that sort of comment? Well, first, let me just um, describe a little bit what the issue is behind that that discussion. So, as I said, through the Freedom of Information Act, they obtained from the assessor the actual statistical code that they claim to use for doing the assessments. The Tribune, because their reporter, Jason Grotto, is a very technically capable person, uh, was actually able to run those models and essentially to do their own assessments, just say, let's, let's take this statistical code and see what the model says the assessment should be. And what they found is that, in fact, the actual assessments that people get are not the assessments that come out of that model that the CCAO claims to be using. They found, in fact, that 98% of the cases are not within $1,000 of what the statistical model says it should be. So the question is, what's, what's going on? What's between the model and the assessments? And there are two things that go on in the assessor's office in between the statistical model and the actual assessments that you get. And they're called machine checks and hand checks. Basically, machine checks are when we don't know, by the way, we don't know really what happens in either of these two stages because the CCAO refuses to say, and they're fighting court orders to divulge their methodology. But at a very high level, we know that machine checks involve an analyst just applying uh, movements to entire neighborhoods of the city, you know, add 10% over here, take 5% off there, things like that. And hand checks are more when they go through property by property looking for outliers and, and changing those. So somehow, through a secret process that we don't understand and they won't tell, 98% of the properties are having their values changed from what the statistical model says it should be. So I think getting back to your bigger question, which is, well, should people find that comforting or disturbing, right? I find it extremely disturbing because they won't divulge how they do it. And while, you know, somebody from the assessor's office says, oh, people don't want to just trust to the purity of mathematics, I'm not sure they want to also trust to the chair of the Democratic political machine in Cook County to be making up people's assessments. And that's the choice. I'd much rather trust mathematics uh, than trust Chicago politicians when coming up with assessment values. Within the industry, it is acceptable to make some hand adjustments. So as anybody knows who knows anything about regression or or modeling like this, of course there's going to be some outliers. You have a regression model, it's kind of fitting average cases, but there are some peculiarities that will always come up. And so when you have outliers, it's it's natural to go and try, try to fix those by hand, and that's acceptable within the industry. But there's no no possible reason for changing 98% of the values out of a statistical model. That is no longer the world of, well, let's just capture a few outliers. That is, we're just changing everything that our model says uh, the assessment should be, and there's there's just no basis for that. So tell me how this has left you thinking differently about government. I mean, you, you worked with the county assessor's office to devise this model in 2009. There was some kind of, I don't know, trust or understanding that, you know, we're all kind of working towards the same thing, and all of a sudden it seems like maybe not. Is that your impression? It's been quite a, quite a learning experience, I will say. Go, going back to, you know, at the time when we originally did the work to help them build a new model, I really looked on that as an example of exactly what good policy and good policymaking can be. We had, you know, a, a, an assessor at the time who wanted to do better, that was Jim Houlihan, wanted innovation, wanted new ideas, 
We had a third-party funder, the MacArthur Foundation, who was willing to support it for philanthropic reasons because the assessor's office didn't have a lot of additional resources for doing this kind of work. And then you had sort of outside experts, RW Ventures and and me as an advisor, who was able to bring some expertise that the in-house people didn't have, put all our heads together, and come up with an innovative new system uh, that was going to make the outcomes better for everybody, much more accurate, much more transparent, much less regressive. And so I would have said, if you would ask me at the conclusion of that project, I would have said, here's a great example of the kind of policy that we're trying to do at Harris School, evidence-driven, rigorous, quantitative work that results in better policy. And until those Tribune reporters originally you know, first called me and came to say that no one was using the model, that's exactly how I thought. I thought, this is great. Uh, this is just an, a perfect example of everything we're trying to do at Harris. So my thinking has changed, uh, you know, in the, in, in the last year. And... I suppose overall not for the better. I mean, it's clear that that work uh, failed. Um, but it does highlight another you know, aspect of what we teach at Harris, which is political economy, which is that politics matter and just coming up with good technocratic ideas is not, not always enough. And so if you look what what happened in this situation, of course, is there was an election and a new assessor came in and they had a different, different agenda. Uh, and I think there are entrenched entrants that don't want to see the system change for a variety of reasons. And above all, I would say that the, this kind of what I'll call the second phase of this, this learning experience, which is learning that they weren't, didn't actually do any of this, has really uh, bolstered my recognition of the importance of the media. Because if it hadn't been for the Tribune, if it hadn't been for Jason Grotto and his work, no one would know that this was going on. And Who's to say whether there's actually going to be a change as a result of this? We're in, the, we're in the middle of it now. I mean, it's been brought to light. There's been people proposing actions. And it's too early to say whether any change will actually come from this. But one thing I'm sure of is that we wouldn't even be this far if it weren't for the work that the Tribune had done. And that's a thing that I maybe we overlook when we teach policy from a more technocratic perspective, which is... Bringing these issues to light when you want change, bringing these issues to light for regular people and politicians who care about doing the right thing is, is just as important as having the sort of technocratic fix to a problem, particularly when there are entrenched groups that don't want the technocratic fix to the problem. So I had not really – you know, a lot of us in academia are a little, I would say, skeptical of journalism. Uh, because we often see, especially more technical research, mischaracterized or incorrectly described in the media. And we think, oh – they either don't understand or they're just trying to sensationalize the work. Uh, they don't like talking about caveats. You, you know, the, the, I think a lot of academics have this view about, about journalism. And this experience has really changed my view because what I saw is a reporter who, A, was given the freedom by his employer to spend nearly two years working on this problem, uh, who was very well trained technically and who produced analysis as, as good as you'll see coming out of you know, academic studies on this question of regressivity. And that is the thing that brought this issue to light. I hope it'll result in change. It's too early to say. But yeah, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a learning experience. Entrenched interests that you mentioned, um, a lot of what they found leaves a big question of why, which is we have not talked about yet. So I think this is an interesting question, why they decided not to make these changes and whose interests that served. So one thing that's clear is that fixing regressivity will result in higher taxes for people who own more expensive homes. 
That may be politically damaging to the assessor, somebody like Joe Berrios, because people who own high-priced homes are much more likely to vote in the election for assessor, and so maybe that's just politically bad. That may be one reason. The other possibility is that the office found it technically too challenging to change. You know, bureaucracies have been, you know, as as they point out, they've been doing the same thing for 35 years. They've run the same model for 35 years, and you come in with a new model. I wonder if it was just too difficult. That in principle, it sounded great to improve things, but involved all kinds of new statistical code and changing the way things were done. And, you know, at the end of the day, trying to get the property tax bills out on time, which is the one thing this office has always prided itself on under Joe Berrios, maybe that became too difficult. And they decided it's more important to get the bills out on time than to have them be right or fair. Now, the one thing that I think is, I mean, has received a lot of attention in the paper that I'm, I'm not quite sure is at, at work here is a lot of people like to point out that, that the assessor gets lots of donations from tax lawyers and that that may be part of the problem. And I think that probably is a problem, but I don't see how it is likely to have played a role here because these tax lawyers make money when rich people appeal and get reductions. So your lawyer takes a cut when they get a reduction for you. So if anything, implementing our system should have resulted in taxes going up for richer people, which you think would have prompted more appeals from them, which probably would have generated more money for uh, for tax lawyers. So I don't really see the connection there that maybe I'm missing it, but I don't see why tax lawyers are likely to have been opposed to this. I think there's plenty of other reasons to be concerned with the system in which people have to pay to get fair taxes. I mean, I don't know why we should ever think it's a good feature of a system that if you pay enough to a tax lawyer, you can get a fair tax rate. That seems to me outrageous. But I, but I don't necessarily see it being connected to the, the choice to not use a less regressive model. So just yesterday, the Tribune itself had an editorial saying it's time for Joe Berrios to go, uh, the assessor. We have Daniel Biss, who was a former mathematics professor here at the university, now turned state senator and candidate for governor. And he is pr- proposing, I think, th- the best idea I've seen so far, which is that local assessors should lose their assessing power if their assessments are regressive year after year. So if we find that you're issuing re- regressive assessments multiple years in a row, you will lose the power to do assessments locally and the state will take over, as his proposed bill. Chuy Garcia is proposing several bills at the county level, but most notably the one that would bar tax lawyers from making contributions to the assessor. And multiple outside parties are interested in lawsuits of various kinds, some of them civil rights-based, because the other thing we know about these assessments is not only do they lead to higher taxes on lower-priced homes, but they also lead disproportionately to higher taxes in minority neighborhoods. And so there may be some basis for legal action there. And so my hope is through local action, through state-level action, through action in the courts, that one or maybe more than one of these efforts is going to strike home and, and result in some change. This episode of Radio Harris was produced by me, Jake J. Smith. Big thanks to Professor Chris Berry for sharing his experience. The Tribune's original story is called The Tax Divide, and it's available online. And one more thing, if you want to learn more about what goes on at Harris, check out our newest podcast, Day One. 
you'll hear straight from alumni and students about how Harris helped them make an impact from their very first day of class and years into the future. In our latest episode, we actually talked to one of the students who helped the Tribune investigate the appeals process. When I think about what kind of the impact I want to have in the municipal finance space and public policy is also about, you know, whether or not resources are allocated not only in a, an efficient and effective manner, but also in a fair manner. That's on our new podcast, Day One. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts.